Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what we've already experienced today in worship, Lord, as we have sung your praises. And Lord, we have seen people show up today that have been here in a while, some that haven't been able to be here, and some that are new. And, Lord, it doesn't matter where we are in our walk with you. We all need you, Lord. None of us have arrived and become all that we can be. But, Lord, we are in that process of becoming more like you. So I pray as we read your word that, Lord, you would be glorified and that you would be lifted up in all that we do. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're talking about the power of Jesus' name this morning. This name that has the power to move us to a life that brings glory to Him and help others to find Him. We're all road signs. We are all supposed to point to Jesus in the way that we live our lives. But in the way that we live our lives, it reveals our hearts and reveals our true intentions. So the power to move mountains, as we're going to see this morning, are found in His name. And our job is to give Him first priority in our lives, to seek Him, and to serve others. All of those are part of this, just like He did. Because that is when we plug into the true power of Jesus' name. So, as we jump right into the Scripture this morning, we're in a... The journey of Mark, and we find Jesus and his disciples, they are about to enter Jerusalem for what would be the last time. This would be the equivalent, they were there for Passover, so this would be the equivalent of homecoming for your favorite college, college football team. I know that we have a local team here in Clemson that when it's homecoming, they have festivities. All week, and everybody travels down to be a part of that. I understand that uh, they had the spring game yesterday, maybe. Uh, so I am sure that people froze there in Death Valley. But uh, then we have a school uh, right down the road from us in Columbia. They love that. And, and pretty soon, uh, if you like football, we're going to have it at AU. So, hey, man, it's uh, it's. Uh, I know some of you could care less about football, but uh, I'm happy to, to more pigskin we have around here, the better. Amen. Whether it be football or barbecue, it's all good, right? But the truth of the matter is, is that this was a a big celebration every year. The Jews would return to Jerusalem from wherever they were to observe the Passover. It was very special to them, and the Jewish nation. What they were doing is celebrating it with the Passover. They were celebrating the age-old custom of God sparing them on the night of when the death angel passed over Egypt. And anyone who painted the blood of a sacrifice on the door jam, the death angel passed over their house. That's where you get the Passover festival. And so the death angel would pass over. And if you did not have the faith enough to do that by sprinkling the sacrificed blood of an animal, uh, on your door, then the firstborn in their house would die, whether they were Egyptian or Jews. And that would be the final straw that Pharaoh just said, okay, y'all get out of here. And finally, if you, if you go back and read that story, you'll see Pharaoh change his mind many times, but that was the last straw. So this is celebrating that. 
And so everyone was talking about God getting into their faith mindsets as the festivities began. I'm sure if they had God t-shirts on there or I was at the Passover t-shirts, they probably were selling those. And then the Roman military, they would be on duty and they would be out in force to make sure this huge mob of people, the Jews, would not get out of control, maybe riot, and then maybe come after some of the officials in the Roman government. So like any good tourist hosting town, oh, we used to see this in Wilmington all the time during the summer, but during this time, during Passover, the population would multiply by three times. I mean, you couldn't get to your favorite restaurant, you couldn't go down your favorite road, you couldn't do anything because there were so many people there. Well, with all of this hubbub, Jesus enters the scene. Jesus, God's servant, enters Jerusalem in just less than a week from when he would be crucified outside of those same city walls. So as we read our scripture today, we're going to see, first of all, that Jesus' name was praised with empty hearts. And we have to be careful that's not us today. Jesus' name was praised with empty hearts. Grab your copy of God's Word and read with me. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. And it says, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. If you remember the Mount of Olives, that is where he preached his first sermon, his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus sent two of them on ahead, Go into that village over there, he told them, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey. Some translations say colt. You will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs it and I will return it soon. Now, my friends, I will tell you, if you see a car or a truck that you like out there and it does not look like it's ever been driven, I would not suggest that you go up and tell the dealership, hey, the Lord said I needed this, so hand me the keys. And it's not going to work like that. But back in this day, we are going to see that this was a special moment of prophecy. Yes, This was foreordained. So the two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, What are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Can you imagine? Jesus said he needed this. Oh, okay. Well, by all means, take it. Well, then many in the crowd in verse eight spread their garments on the road ahead of them. Now, when when they would wear garments, many in the Jewish faith, they had multiple garments. They had like three or four different layers of clothes. They had their outside garment. But then within that, they had, like I said, just layer upon layer upon layer. And so they would take these layers out and they would put it on the ground for the king that's coming. They said what Jesus had told them to say, and and then, verse 8, many spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches or palm branches that they had cut in the field. Jesus was at the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Hosanna, or some people say, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. Man, what we see here is just like when you watch TV and the team, come, the home team comes out and everybody erupts. And then finally, that last star player comes out and then what was already loud just turns into an eruption because they are happy to be there. They are happy to see their teams that they have come here to see today. This was that. This was somebody that all of these people were finally happy to see Jesus and they were so devoted to him. It says in verse 11, so Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Well, man, there is a lot of stuff that we can pull out of this. I just want to pull out a few this morning for our time together. Number one, why a cult? Well, of all the things Jesus called the disciples to get, hey, there's a cult over there. Go get that and I'll ride that. Did you know that if you were to go back to, in the Old Testament, the, the, the prophet Zechariah, go to the book of Zechariah 9, 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Did you know that this donkey ride was preordained? It says in Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice, people, O Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming. He is righteous and victorious. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Isn't that amazing that so many years before this actually happened, this was destined to be? It just wasn't by chance that that cult was there. It wasn't just that Jesus saw something and thought in the spur of the moment that they would do it. This was preordained. Folks, I want to tell you, from the moment said in the beginning there was light all the way to the end when Jesus Christ comes back and we are taken to our eternal home, everything from the book of Genesis to the end of Revelation is God's plan. And Jesus is at the center of it, even if it means Jesus is going to ride on a colt into Jerusalem. And unlike today, some, some of you might say, well, I've got a donkey or I've seen donkeys. That doesn't look too prestigious. Well, the truth of the matter is back in that day, a donkey was a, a prestigious animal. The donkeys were used in, in whether it be farming or, or uh, with the king's court and all of these things. They were, they were, they were like pickup trucks back then. Everybody wants a pickup truck nowadays. They were like the pickup trucks of those days. They were useful. They were stylish. And anybody who was anybody had a nice one, right? So, the fact that they put him on a colt and, and gave him all of this fanfare going in is kind of humbling because you would think, being a king and everything, they'd have had like a white stallion for him to ride in. But my friend, that day is coming if you read the book of Revelation. But today, for this Passage, we see that he comes in on a donkey. And I'm not a farmer. I'm not a, a cowboy, obviously. Uh, my only uh, experience of riding a horse was at a youth camp, and it kicked me off. And I swore I'd never get on another one. Of course, I was a pudgy little kid. He probably didn't want me on there anyway. But the truth of the matter is, is that if this colt had never been ridden, 
I've seen enough westerns on TV and on the movies to know that if you hop on an animal that's never been ridden, what's going to happen? Oh, you're going to go for a ride. They're going to start bucking you off and trying to get you off of them because they're not used to that. But here, Jesus says, get that colt that's never been ridden. Bring him here. They put down garments and they put down blankets so that Jesus won't be sitting on the stinky animal and all that smell get on him. And so they, they put him on there and then Jesus just sits up on that colt and rides into Jerusalem. Why did that colt not buck? Why did that colt not try to get Jesus off? Because it was Jesus. Jesus is the master over us and over the animals and over everything. And it was under his control. And I think another thing, the reason Jesus chose a donkey over a horse is that a horse would have symbolized war. A warrior coming into the city. The donkey or the colt represented peace. So Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem as a conquering general. It wasn't a ticker tape parade for a war hero. It was a suffering servant riding on a meager colt coming in to where his fans were throwing down their garments and waving palm branches and singing Hosanna. You know, I was just as I was reading this, we've we've talked a lot about the disciples and how they wanted the accolades and they wanted the worldly power. I bet they were eating this up. I'm sure they were singing along and singing with Hosanna, Hosanna, and just really, really loving it because they're saying, finally, we're getting our comeuppance. We're finally getting what we were looking for. Little did they know what was coming up in the next few days. Why lay down their garments? Because in that day, the tradition to welcome a king, you would lay down one gar- one's garments. And for much of Jesus' ministry, it's amazing. Much of Jesus' ministry, he shunned the limelight. He told people, don't tell anyone about this miracle. Or, hey, everybody's getting, there's a large group here. Let's go to the other side of the lake. But here, he is welcoming everybody's praise. Ironically, and you probably knew I was going here, the name of Jesus is praised one day and then cursed by the same people in just a few following days. The same crowd that is shouting Hosanna in today's passage will be the same crowd that yells, Crucify Him! Only a few days later. The name of Jesus demands a response. Either way, you can praise Him or you can curse Him. But we must respond. We must acknowledge Him or some ignore Him. You can sit here today and say that there is no God. And that is your opinion, whether it be true or not. But by ignoring God does not mean that He goes away. If I were to get pulled over by a police officer for speeding, and he walks up to my window, and I just say... He's not here. He's not here. He doesn't disappear. He's there. And my friend, I'm telling you, God is here. Jesus came to this earth. And your response does not dictate the power of His name. Only your response to it. You see, will you praise His name today and then curse it later? 
Will you sing, Savior, He can move the mountain. And just really get into that or, or sing your favorite victories in Jesus and, and how great thou art. And just, woo, get out of here and ready to take on hell with a water pistol. And then you get to your job or you get to your social circle or you get on your phone or your laptop and you start spewing out poison. Causing drama just so that you can feel needed. And doing everything opposite of what you just did on Sunday. Don't you throw the crowd under the bus, the ones that were yelling Hosanna one day, and then crucify the next. Because that same empty heart can be ours if we're not careful. Beware of the trap of wrong worship. And this is what it is. It's on the screen for you. The people in this passage were worshiping the celebrity of Jesus. The idea of Jesus. The people of the passage were worshiping the celebrity of Jesus, not his holiness or his call for unashamed obedience. I'm telling you what, we can fill this stage and fill these pews with people. We can sing three-part harmony. We can have every kind of musician you want. And we can just raise the rafters with music. And I'll do my best to preach a sermon that'll make you feel so good about yourself when you leave. You are walking on sunshine when you leave. Woo! I feel good. But it does no good if you are here to worship the person preaching or to worship the people that are playing the music or just to worship the experience. And all the while not worshiping Jesus. You see, these people, they had heard the stories, they had experienced or were experiencing the healing, and they wanted to see the Jesus show. Folks, we are not here for the show. We are here for the worship of Jesus. And the worship was as spectators, not participants. Do you understand the difference? That is your worship a spectator? Well, I'm going to sit back, and I don't know this song, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And then, okay, I know that song. I'll sing along with that. What do you mean he's not reading out the King James Version? What do you mean? What do you mean that that person is doing this? What do you mean? Did you see the way that person looked at me when I came in here? All of these different things that go through our mind. Satan just kind of putting these little things in your mind, making you think about, oh, my goodness, is the pot roast going to burn before the preacher beats quiet? Come on, preacher. I got, I got to get in my line. I got to get to the redwood before the crowd gets there. We think about the wrong things and we're spectating worship and not participating. We're not singing. We're not engaged with the scriptures. We're not taking notes as word, the word of God is being presented and we're just kind of through the whole process. Be invested, my friends. Don't be a spectator, be a participant. The second thing we see is that the name of Jesus, it demands that our worship is true. The name of Jesus demands that our worship be true. Look at verses 12 through 14. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree. And it was in full leaf. In other words, it was fully bloomed. And it was a little way off. So he saw this beautiful tree. He saw it's in bloom. And he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for the fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May 
no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, man, that, that tree looks really good. It's kind of like you get to Chick-fil-A and you realize, oh, man, I'm going to get some Chick-fil-A. And then you realize, oh, it's Sunday. They ain't getting no Chick-fil-A on Sunday. Jesus saw that fruit tree. He's like, oh, man, I'm hungry. I'm going to get some figs. That's going to be so good. And he gets up to it and there are no figs on it. I'd be mad, too. So he curses the tree. I'm sure the disciples are saying, what is wrong with him? It's just a tree. Well, what's the purpose of a fig tree? This is not a trick question. What is the purpose of a fig tree? To bear what? Figs. There you go. Yeah. So if there, if you are a fig tree and there are no figs when there should be figs, then you're not living up to your purpose. Many of us can picture this, whether it be a peach field, peach orchard, or if you drive up through North Carolina through the beautiful apple orchards, if you go in during the off season, you see all of the limbs and just everything is so desolate. Things have to die before they bloom, right? But in this case, this tree looked so good, but it had no fruit. So Jesus cursed the fig tree because it had leaves with no fruit, even though it was in season for it to start blooming. This tree was cursed because it professed to have fruit, but did not. And I know I've lowered my voice and been kind of quiet about this point. That's just because that crushes me. This is a hammer across the head in a velvet glove. The tree was cursed because it professed to have fruit, but it did not. Another way of wording that would be the Jews that were praising his name and singing Hosanna. They had all the look of being worshipers of Jesus, but they were empty inside. The Jewish nation that was supposed to accept him as Messiah rejected him. They looked big. They looked. They had this form of religion of the Old Testament law and all of their other laws that are associated with it. But still, in the midst of that, they were empty. Jesus did not curse his tree because it did not have any fruit or leaves. Out of season, the fig tree gave the illusion of growing fruit, but produced none. Do you see the lesson Jesus was teaching through this? The people of Israel looked to be fruitful as God's chosen people. However, their lifestyle bore no fruit or gave any testimony to that. If you were like this fig tree, you're all talk and no fruit. Jesus loves you too, though. And he loves you too much to stay like that. He loves you too much if you are, if you're going through the motions, but yet he knows that you could do more. He's going to work on your heart. He's going to orchestrate things in your life to draw you to him. And so Jesus saw through the fake worship of those who were waving palm branches and throwing down their garments. And the crazy thing is that those who were worshiping him, they didn't even know they were fake. Their worship of Jesus in their mind was as true as could be because they were worshiping the celebrity. How do you know if your worship of Jesus is true or not? This is a scary question, isn't it? How do you know if if you haven't been sitting in the same pew for all your life, 
hearing the same things and doing the same thing and going home, taking the same nap, getting up later in the evening and getting ready for your work week or whatever you got to do and do that week after week after week and it all goes through here, but it never goes through here. How do you know if your worship is true and heartfelt? You will bear fruit. Well, preacher, what is fruit? Well, i got good news for you. You don't have to worry about me defining it. Paul defines it for us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are... No, there is no law against these things. So my question is, in your life, does your life have this fruit in it? I'm not saying you've got to bat a thousand and have everything all the time. But there are days where I can be kind and lose all my self-control. Especially in some of y'all ladies bake those cakes and do all those things. My self-control is out the window. But the truth of the matter is, is that honestly... If you're a person that loves to, to fuss and cuss and, and, and cause dissension and, and be the center of attention all the time, but yet you go to church and you have your Christian t-shirt on and you got your bumper sticker and you carry your Bible, but you are just one honorary person, what does that tell you about your worship? Or if you're that person that comes to church and what you hear on Sunday makes no difference on Monday through Saturday. You want to know what a fruitful Christian is? There is your answer. It's not a preacher. It's not an opinion. It's not even a Twitter feed or a hashtag. It is God's Word. You want to know what a fruitful Christian is? Start striving to put these things in your life. Then you will not be a fruitless Christian. So not only does he curse the fig tree, but he takes one step further. If you look at verse 15, it says, When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people, buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The Scriptures declare... My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it in to a den of thieves. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the priests. He's talking about the Jews that are going there to worship. Because you see, the Gentiles, they're not allowed to come in to the temple. So he's talking to his own supposed chosen people. When leading priests and teachers of the religious law heard what was done... They began planning how to kill him. Jesus was clearing house, and they were trying to quiet him up. But here's the problem. It says, but they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And that evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. And the next morning, check this out. Here's, here's a callback. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree and on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. 
Why did Jesus clear the temple? Again, those who claimed to be believers were not bearing fruit. No longer would family, the way the sacrifice worked is when you would take this lamb or you would take these doves and that lamb would be a lamb without blemish. It would be perfect. And so what you would do is you would basically make it your pet for that year and you would nurture that lamb and your your children would get close to that lamb and, and you would probably name the lamb and that would be kind of like your household pet. And then for a year you would get that lamb ready. The, the coat would be good. There would be no deformities and everything would be so precious. And then you take the trip to Jerusalem and then when you come to offer this animal as a sacrifice for your sin, it would actually be a sacrifice. That is the purpose of why they did that. But what was happening was they had lambs are us outside the temple gate. They had Walmart and all these other places. And you didn't have to bring your family animal. You could go there and get a second rate one. You could get one that maybe had a peg leg or, or cross eyed or, or wool that wasn't fully developed and nobody else wanted. Just go grab that one. Pay out whatever you want. The temple made money off of it. And hey, a lamb's a lamb, right? No, there was no sacrifice. So people were, what I guess you would say, going through the motions. And Jesus wasn't having it. The temple workers and priests, they were profiting too because people that would want to buy these things would bring their money, but the exchange rate, they would fleece, fleece get it, sheep? They would fleece them. The, 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 the exorbitant, it was almost the, I guess it's almost like the gas prices today. You just can't imagine. Oh, you're, you want a dollar? That's going to cost you five dollars. And so the temple was making money. The temple's greatest purpose was to generate money. And my friends, that is not the purpose of a temple. That is not the purpose of a church. That is not the purpose of a believer. I'm not saying if you have money, you're bad. But I am saying the love of money is the root of all evil. And what Jesus is just saying here is that y'all have lost the, the main thing. You are no longer producing fruit. You are trying to feed yourselves on money to make your guilt go away by halfway worshiping with me. I'm having none of it. And Jesus, he was angry. He wasn't angry as like a... a a uh, like so-and-so made me mad, so now I'm mad at them kind of thing. He was angry because they had turned God's house into a jockey lot. And he was not going to have it. When he talks about the den of thieves, a den of thieves is a place where the thieves associate and hide. And it's it's a sorry, shameful condition when the house of God becomes a place where, here it is, unrepentant, unrepentant, people who are unrepentant, in other words, I know I'm sinning and I don't care. Jesus, you can have everything but this thing. This is my thing. They are unrepentant in their sin and they are actively involved in it. And they have no desire to repent. No desire to encourage someone else. To them, worship has become a religious act that has no dedication, no meaning, and no fruit. Like the fig tree, it looks impressive with many leaves. 
but no fruit. Oh, I pray that we are not a church that looks impressive from the road, but when they come inside, they see no fruit. I love this church, and I love every one of you that are in it. And I am so grateful that we have so many people that are fruit bearers. But only you know the truth between you and the Lord. And then the last passage we're going to look at today is in verses 22 through 26. The power of Jesus' name moves you to forgiveness before you worship. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. If you come into worship with a chip on your shoulder, you get rid of the chip before you get ready to worship. Then Jesus said to his disciples, verse 22, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. If you believe you've received it, it will be yours. And for our prosperity gospel people, this is not talking about money. Okay. Verse 25, but when you are praying, just first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. The Bible is clear. If you have an unforgiven, un, unforgiven spirit, if you're not able to forgive somebody, God will not forgive you. So if that chip on your shoulder... is worth holding on to. I hope you understand it's worth God not giving you forgiveness. How can we expect to be forgiven when we won't forgive somebody else? It doesn't mean that you forget and it never happened. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is remembering what has happened to you, but choosing not to hold it against that person. I remember my pastor has said this many years ago, and I still hear it, and I've told it to you all before. But if you have an unforgiving spirit, you are letting that person live in your life rent-free. You're sitting there thinking, oh, the person, your neck tenses up, and your your hair falls out or stands up straight, and you get that scowl, and you, oh, I just remember that person. If I were to see him, if I were to see her, I'd give her a piece of my mind. I hope you enjoy hanging on to that because that's all you'll ever have. And I guarantee you that other person isn't even thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. Prayer in Jesus' name. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Here's what it means. Just because Jesus said, if you pray in my name, if you add Jesus to your prayer. Jesus, I pray that when I go outside today, there'll be a brand new F-150 red with a bow on it for me outside in the parking lot. So when we go out there, if there's a red F-150 with a bow on it, it's mine. No, no, no. I said Jesus' name first. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying by praying in my name that if you pray in my name and you pray for the things that I have promised you out of my word, I want to give it to you. You pray for the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit in your life. He says, I will give it to you abundantly. If you want to serve others as you serve me, I will give you opportunities to do that. If you want to do these things that I have laid out in my word, if you want to obey my word, apply my word, internalize my word, and share my word with others, then yes, you can do it. The problem is is that we pray 
too many times is our will, not his. Folks, fruitful prayer that Jesus is talking about does not come from bargaining with God or seeking the approval of others. If you say, oh God, in Jesus' name, if you would just do this, I know it will be good for you. If you just do this. It's kind of like the guy that said, oh, Jesus, the, he was on an airplane. He said, oh, Jesus, if you just get me off of this plane, I'll give you half of everything I own. Well, the man beside him was a preacher. Preachers hear that stuff. Preacher comes out and they land. And he says, hey, brother, I heard you say that if you got on the ground, you give half your stuff to the church. Well, I pastor a church. He said, I appreciate that, preacher, but God and I have another understanding. I prayed when I landed and said, God, if I ever get on another plane again, I'll give you everything I got. Bargaining. God doesn't bargain. God, <laughs> fruitful prayer that does not produce fruit is meaningless. Fruitful prayer that does not produce fruit when you pray is fruitless prayer. And it's not dependent on you having a positive, self-made, can-do attitude. Again, if you go back up here and look, it says, if you pray and you have no doubt in your heart, it will happen. Again, I have no doubt that there's going to be that red F-150 out of the parking lot. Sandy and I are going to have to fight for it. She'll probably win. She's got, she's got babies. She, she knows how to be. She's got all them boys in her house. But the truth of the matter is, is that do I believe it's out there? Probably not. Have you ever prayed this? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would do this. And you pray for it, and you pray for it, and you don't see anything happening, and all of a sudden you start doubting that it's ever going to happen. Don't doubt. Keep praying. The prayers that God answers are the prayers of those who believe in Him. They have faith in God, as the passage says. Prayers for other persons without having hard feelings. Again, you can't pray for others if you still harbor hatred towards somebody. And prayers that are motivated to please God, not ourselves. Prayers that build up the kingdom and prayers of the forgiven for the forgiven. This is a bridge every prayer must cross. Think about this. If there was a bridge to cross for your prayers, you have to be forgiven and you have to forgive those that have sinned against you, just as Jesus did. So yes, God answers prayer. How does God answer prayer? He's got three answers, y'all. It's not rocket science. Yes, no, and then what's the other one? Oh, hey, wait. Or maybe, whatever you want to put there. Yes, no, or maybe. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, when God answers prayer, whenever the answer comes, God's kingdom comes first. God's timing comes second. And then, are you praying for the right things in the right ways? My friends, if your prayer is not being answered, I would ask you, why are you praying it? And what, how does it glorify God in the way that it is answered? And it may just mean you need to retweak your prayer a little bit. And finally, if God answers your request, will it bring glory to him? If God answers this prayer that you have, will it bring glory to him or will it just make you feel better? 
We have precious people every week on Wednesday night. And they pray for many people that have, and some of you are here today that have been prayed for, and we thank you for that. We pray for our loved ones and those in the church that are hurting and have physical ailments. But I, I hate to say this, but sometimes it's just so we don't have to go through whatever they're going through. Sometimes are we praying for other people to feel better so that we won't have to go through the grief process? Are we praying that they're better so, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. We've got to be careful. We must pray for those that are hurting. We must pray for those that are sick. But we also must pray that God would move in our hearts, move in our community, and move in a way to when we worship, we worship with clean, open hearts, not the pretense that these people were worshiping with. And how do you do that? You worship in Jesus' name. What does that mean? We worship in the will of Jesus. We worship according to his word, and we worship in a way that brings him Glory. So as Easter approaches next week, there will be a lot of people in worship. And I just pray that for you and me, our lives this week would prepare us for our worship next Sunday. My friends, if you have been challenged by these words this morning and you realize that your heart is empty, that you've been going through the motions, but yet don't feel it inside, you're not sure of your salvation. My friends, I hope you don't leave this place today until you either come forward or talk to me after the church, and we will make sure that you know what that means, that you have honest, fruit-bearing worship. If you'd like to come to this altar and pray or join this church, this invitation is a time for you to respond. Would you